Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Welcome along to episode 59 of the Howie Games. Thank you for giving up some of your time to tune in. Now, this set was originally scheduled to feature Liesl Jones. The superstar Olympian will now appear on next week's show. We love Liesl. As a late breaker, our good buddies at Fox Sports provided the chance to have a chat with Andrew Simons. Roy, one of the most frequently requested guests from our listeners. You good people. So, Roy, it is this week. In the air. Simons doesn't drop him. <laughs> he won't drop it. He's got it. It's another good one too. Andrew Simons came running in and he's taken the catch. Andrew has recently signed to be part of Fox Cricket on the new dedicated 24-hour cricket channel. How good is that? Now, Roy, to describe the man, incredibly talented, dashing, entertaining, laid back, take your pick. Much to Roy's bemusement, people congregate around him. They love him. For mine, it's because they can identify with him, with his love of fishing and the outdoors, his taste for a beer. He comes across sort of almost anti-establishment. He's got in a few scrapes and he is dry, very, very dry. He makes people laugh and laugh and laugh, including me. Enjoy Andrew Simons. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind you see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion Andrew Simons, the big Roy Welcome to the Howie Games You're in Townsville, I'm in Melbourne And you've got shoes on, how are you man? Yeah, I'm, I'm good Howie, how are you going? <laughs> yeah, good, good I'm going to tell you right off the top We are 60 episodes in and yep. there are three people that are the most requested to appear on this show. Jonathan Thurston, Kerry yep. O'Keefe, yep. and Andrew Simons. The requests we get for you, Roy, seriously. Really? So, I don't know. People just love you, mate. People love everything about you. What do you think it is? <laughs> oh, I don't, I don't know. don't know. <laughs> Must have too much time on their hands. <laughs> no. have, you got, have you been able to get JT? Uh, we haven't got JT yet, but I'm sure being in North Queensland, you can probably help us out with that. Mate, well, I, I see him at school and that around the place. I'll mention it to him. Um, well, yeah. Are you telling sure. him? He's a, he's a good fellow. I'm sure he'll do it for you if he's got time, but he's obviously pretty busy. But yeah. Well, you just tell him how great an experience it was for you and right. we'll go from there. You know what I think it is, Roy? I think because... Everyone, A, loved the way you played cricket, but I think everyone loved that you weren't beholden to rules, you like to enjoy yourself, have the occasional beer. I think that's why the Aussie public have always loved you, mate. Yeah, well, I, I did play my cricket properly uh, and I trained properly and all these sorts of things. But, yeah, I think um, I suppose it it is a sort of a fairly sort of high-pressure job in the fact that you're in, the, you're in the spotlight. And so when I did get a chance to let my hair down, I, I, I did because I needed to, you know. It's a sort of a, a release um, for me and you know at times I obviously went a bit too far but um you know that's that's the way I sort of live I sort of live day to day I don't sort of there's not a great deal of planning that goes into my life Howie so um yeah that's just sort of I suppose the way I uh the way I roll it's funny you say that about the planning because I was talking to MJ here the producer of the show and he said so what time's Roy and I said if Roy gets in any time in the three-hour window it'll be a positive <laughs> but you're there on time ready to roll which is good yeah, no, I had, uh, I had Laura, the missus, on to me. She, she goes, you better not be late because they'll be waiting for you. So 
I'm, I'm here on time. I had the pleasure of meeting the delightful Laura. We sat next to each other at the AFL Grand Final, um, yeah. and she's obviously got a fair bit of uh, involvement in, in your day-to-day life. It came out in the Big Bash, I think it was last year, I think we saw a photo of you, Roy, with instructions for the day written on the windscreen of yes. your car. Does that still take place? Yeah, I, I, um, it's, it's, yes, it does. I don't forget it if I write it on the windscreen because it's in front of me and it's it's confronting me. So if I've got to be somewhere uh, to do something on time, uh, that's that's where it goes, straight on the window. So what type of things would have been on the window this week? This is on the windscreen of your car um, and in a texter. Yeah, I've got my son's birthday written on the window at the moment and I've got, um, what else is there? There's a, there's a code for a gate. Um <laughs> And then just some dates, and there's also I I bloke uh, I bloke some money, so I've got <laughs> got five hundred bucks written up in the corner of the windscreen too, because I to pay him when I get back from Sydney. Don't get the five hundred confused with a young bloke's birthday, or it could be yeah. an expensive. Yeah. <laughs> what 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 does life involve for you these days, mate? Um, well, as little as possible, but uh, at the moment I I do a little bit of farming. Uh, Trying to spend time with the kids. Um, young blokes started playing cricket this year. Uh, they play soccer, rugby, um, sw- swimming, uh, and then made a fair bit of fishing and crabbing uh, goes on in my life. The barra season's actually about to close. There's only two two more sleeps and the barra season's over, and I'm going to be in Sydney for that. So that's a little bit heartbreaking. But um, had a good session on the barras here a couple of days ago. We caught some nice ones, so I've got that out of my system. How, how many times a week would you go fishing? Typically, um, when you're at home, three or four. If I if I've got nothing on, yeah, just and, and it depends obviously on tides and that sort of thing. Good tides, obviously, I'm looking for. But um, yeah, I'll try and get out in the water at least two or three times a week. What's the key to catching a barra? Uh, tides in Townsville here, the tides are a big thing. You want probably a three meter tide that runs out to sort of one point two is sort of is a good. Good tide for barrows here, and that, those tides are just um, just sort of finishing up now. Today's probably the last last of the good tides for, for the barrows, and there's only a couple of days to go. So there'll be a few boys out there chasing their beloved last barrow Monday, I'd say, the next uh, couple of days. Uh, what about crabbing? What's crabbing? crabbing? The key thing to crabbing, the, the old pro that taught me, Steve Fortini, he said the biggest thing is to put make sure your pot is flat on the bottom. You know, you don't throw your pot in the water because if it's laying on a log or something, the crabs will get underneath it and pull the bait out from the bottom of the pot. So make sure your pot's flat and make sure that your entrances are running with the flow of the water. The entrances running with the flow? Yes, if they're if they're a square or rectangular pot, that is, but they... round ones are obviously you can you can put them in however you like. But um, and the and the last tip is make sure your bait is right in the middle of the pot so the crab can't reach through the side and pull the bait out. He's actually got to go into the pot to get the bait. So as my, they're the three little tips. As my six year old son calls them, crocodiles. Is there crocodiles up there or not? Yes, lots. Right. Yeah, yeah. We see. Yeah, you see crocs. Yeah, I see crocs most weeks. So, so you don't. Yeah. You, there's no ever reason to dive overboard. N- no, not really. No, you don't. You don't. Uh, we ha- I mean, there hasn't been a crocodile attack in Townsville for God knows how long. But uh, obviously, you know, there's still a lot of crocs here. Um, but you just got to respect them, and yeah, hopefully they respect you. Obviously, fishing in the outdoors is a massive part of your life, and we'll get to where it all started off soon. But there, there's various urban legends and stories about you, Roy, that will punctuate this chat, and you can confirm them or not. It's back in the past a bit now, but did you and Maddie Hayden get in trouble on a boat? 
Yes, we um, we sank a boat on the uh, Stratty North Stratty Bar, crossing it early one morning. Um, so you you want me to tell the story how and I'd how it unfolded? I'd love you to tell the story, Roy. <laughs> We've got hours. All right. Well, yeah. So it was sort of New Year's time, and Hados and I were over on um, North Stratty uh, on holidays, basically, and we uh, owned a fishing boat together, and so we. This particular morning, we'd we'd been out the previous two mornings fishing, and we thought, "Oh, we'll go again." And um, but constantly, the sand is moving over there on that on that bar at Stratty. So mm-hmm. it's no two days are really ever the same because everything slightly changes, obviously with tide and sand movement. So crossing that bar, you have to sort of weave your way out and dogleg. The last bit's a bit of a dogleg kink between the two sandbars, and it was just breaking daylight. And I was driving, and so we get you sort of sit there and you watch the swell, right? You watch for sets of waves, and then you pick your time to go. So you might sit there for five or ten minutes, just making sure you got you got everything in order, and then away you go, and you you got you got to attack it. You can't back down. So away we go. We get over the first sort of set of waves, and then and we weave around, and, and we're going through to to sort of go to the last break, and then out into the ocean, and. A set, three set waves stood up in front of us and and basically the first one was going to break on us so I sort of gunned it and as we hit the top of the wave, the boat came down, the engine sort of dunked into the water and everything got snuffed out. We had no power so we're looking for fuel lines and batteries come undone and, and all this sort of thing. Keys have come out of the ignition nut. We checked all that and then the second wave hit us and sort of half filled us up and pushed us side on. And then the third wave just filled us up completely, and we're we're um we're in the water. So I saw I, I noticed Hayden sort of grabbed something and shoved it down his togs as he jumped in the water. And there was there was three of us. There was uh, a mate of ours, Trent. Trent Butler was with us as well, and he um he's over the side with us. So all of a sudden, one Life minute jackets. we're going no, right? Didn't have one on. They're right. in the boat. Oh, good, right? Mate, this all that all happened in about ten or twelve seconds, right? So he didn't, we didn't have time to get one on. Um, and then we're in the water. One minute we're going fishing, the next minute, holy smokes. And um, so we sort of all jumped in the water and hate us to start swimming for the beach. Which is how far away? Oh, you can, I mean, you can see the beach. But what, what the problem was is a sort of a five or six knot current yep. dr- taking us out to sea and we're trying to obviously go in. So Hades just starts swimming because he's, he's a strong swimmer and uh, he thought, oh, I'll bugger it, you know, I'll just get to the beach and we'll work out what to do from there. So anyway, Trent and I sort of start sort of going and Hados, is, he's just cutting for it, I'm thinking, and Trent, I could see the panic in his face and I thought, oh, this mightn't be good. So I whistled to Hados and got him to stop and come back. And uh, sort of, so Trent was in shock, the poor bloke, and wow. so for the next probably 40 or 50 minutes... We sort of just swimming along with him slowly and letting him stop and have a rest, and then we'd go a bit further and stop and have a rest. But you know, the whole time he's sort of taking two steps forward and one step back because of the current. So anyway, we got we'd been swimming, I suppose, yeah, forty or fifty minutes, and we got to the to the sort of where the break is, and you could stand on the I could stand on the sandbar, the water sort up to my my chin, and I said to Trent, I said, um, stand up, you can stand up here, mate, and have a rest. And he went to stand up, and he just I don't know the shock and all that of the whole situation he just went straight to the bottom and um anyway so he kept swimming anyway he, and Hados sort of 
just tapped me on the shoulder and let Trent get in front of me. He goes, he goes, I'm thinking about maybe we knock him out and then we just drag him in because he's he's take it's taking forever. And I'm I'm thinking it's five thirty in the morning, five o'clock in the morning, shark feeding time. I'm thinking if he punches him and his nose starts bleeding, that's a really bad idea. I'm going no, no, that's. Oh, I'm not the smartest bloke in the world, Hayes, but that is the stupidest <laughs> thing I reckon you've ever said to me. <laughs> so anyway, we knocked that on the head and, yeah, we got him We got him to the beach and, oh, actually, on the way in, he had the, you know those big Okanui board shorts? Oh, the long ones. Yeah, the huge, they were over his knees. And uh, said to him, said, mate, why don't you rip them off? They're, they're <laughs> slowing you down. He goes, mate, oh, my missus gave me these for Christmas. I can't. So he wouldn't take his shorts off, poor, poor bloke. But anyway, so we got we got, got him to the beach and he we, we sort of dragged him up onto the sand and he just collapsed. He just lay there in about an inch of water and he was just, he was just, he was exhausted, the poor bloke. Anyway, so Hados reaches into his, into his shorts and he pulls out the, pulls out the sunglasses and puts them on. That's what he grabbed out That's of the boat. That's what he grabbed off the dashboard as we all bailed out of the boat. I'm thinking, mate, that's... Right, legend one, the boat was sunk, right? We've ticked yes. that one off, Roy. True story, yes. Um, it's been an interesting day, and this is going to actually air on Thursday, which means we've got a really quick turnaround. Yep. Obviously, yesterday the Cricket Australia report came out, mate. I'm not sure how much has filtered up your way. You're obviously busy with your, with your family up there, but um, it was a pretty damning um, report on the state of Australian cricket, and I know you're extremely proud, uh, as are all the guys and girls that have represented their country, um, with pride, how's it sat with you, mate? Yeah, look, I think there's been cultural issues there for quite some time, and there's always been, ever since I can remember, there's always been a rift between administrators and players, and it's 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 got to the point where it needs to be fixed um, because it's it's just too much bad blood, you know, between administrators, players, and then actually within the playing group that they're not sort of a unit like they should be as well. So um, they need a couple of really strong characters to sort of try and start sifting through and working out how to make things better. It's obviously not going to happen immediately, but it's obviously been recognised. And then now it's got to, it's actually got to come from the people that are running the game and your, and, your, and your captains and your senior players have got to sit down and say, right, boys, this isn't acceptable. We need to fix it up. We need to get our cricket back on track, and we need to get uh, administrators and players on the same page because it's 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 killing it. It's killing everyone. It's killing the players, killing the games, killing the administrators, and what have you. So, um, very important over the next twelve months that these things get uh, addressed and sorted and and straightened out. Because, yeah, as you said, as a, as an ex player, you, it's a, it's a pride thing too. You want the game. You try and leave the game and in the same or if not better condition than you left it in and that's uh, not what's happening at the moment um, and it's it's very it's sad it's disappointing it's sad and obviously with the you know the ball tampering issue last year and and the, the penalties dealt to the boys and you know there's a lot there's a lot of um, open wounds there I think and people need to sit down and realize that yep made mistakes yep we need to fix them we need to fix up our culture and then we need to move on and get the Australian people Proud of, of their of their cricket team again. The difference, Roy, between playing fiercely and playing to win, and playing with a aggression and a 
uncomfortableness to it. Can you see the difference between the sides that you played in and what has happened to the current side in the last few years or not really? Yeah, look, I mean, boys will be boys and there's always, not everything's going to run smoothly the whole time, you know, it's 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 a sport becomes passion, you know, and people say things and do things at times which you regret, but that's happening a little bit too much for me at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, yep, okay, as I said, boys will be boys, but you, there there is unwritten rules in, in all sports. There's some things you don't say to people on cricket fields and that, and, and we all know you don't overstep that mark. Um, and obviously that, that mark's been overstepped, you know, a number of times recently, and, it, and that's... That's that's damning too for the game, the player, and the sport, um, and it's it's ugly, you know. So there needs to be a little bit of thought in the way you go about your cricket. I suppose you, you, I don't care. You can be as aggressive as you want, but um, you must play within the rules. And there are certain things you, you can and can't say and do, and and we all know what they are. So um, it's about having, I suppose, the mental controls not to get caught up in the moment and say something stupid or do something that you're going to regret because it, it, it's cost it's costing us big time at the moment now Roy actually why why Roy I've, I was always introduced to you as Roy why Roy because <laughs> your name is uh, Andrew yes uh, Roy remember the great Leroy Loggins the basketballer oh yeah played up for the bullets yes captain the bullets and led into a number of uh, premierships. So when I moved in from Charters House to Brisbane, my coach Toot Byron thought I looked a lot like Leroy. Ah. <laughs> and so Leroy was in his prime, obviously, and winning trophies and shooting three pointers and what have you with his eyes closed. So he just started calling me Leroy, and um, it just got it just stuck. And um, yeah, I've had it ever since I was about. Oh, 12, 14 years of age. But you're comfortable yeah. with it. You, I, and I've noticed I introduce myself normally as Howie and you introduce yourself frequently as Roy rather than Andrew. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, most – I very rarely get called Andrew. It's either Roy or Simo. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, mostly Roy. Even yeah, even my wife calls me Roy. Does so she? it's Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's – yeah, it's just – yeah, it's become second nature, I suppose. I don't even think about it now, yeah. Fox Sports, the way I see the way they are rolling it out um, – there's Warren, mm. there's Gilchrist, and there's Simons. I think they're the three key planks of the whole operation. Um, <laughs> is that the way you see it? No, I don't. <laughs> well, I, you're I you elevating what, yourself above those two. I t- no, I, I tell you what, Junior would be disappointed you didn't get mentioned <laughs> he would, there. He will. He'll be ringing you. He will. He oh, will. look, we've got a no. We've got a really good team. We've got you know, Buff Lehman, uh, Brett Lee, uh, yourself, Fisher Gua, yes, Mike Hussey. Yes, Mr. Cricket. Bet Lee. It's um. It's yeah. I, I don't know how they're affording all you guys because there's, there's a lot. There's a lot of people on the books. What what I want to know, and I know they're talking a lot about technological advancement. Are you bringing your fielding technology that you rolled out last year and the year before on the Big Bash, where you would plus and minus players work in the field, which was convoluted but revolutionary in its time, Roy? Yes, I mean, I have been working on it, and I have been talking to the people at Fox with <laughs> oh, no. potentially some sort of a method, but we haven't come up with a strategy yet. Right. But uh, I'm going to continue to go with it because, as you well, you, I don't know if you watched that 2020 game the other day. Yes, Glenn Maxwell got dropped three times. Yes, in that game, and and nearly nearly pinched victory from the jaws of defeat, and you know the the Pakistan fielding was was horrible. Um, but they they managed to win the game, 
But um, they could have done it in, in, in a lot more, um, you know, measured fashion if they had taken their catches and their ground fielding was a lot better. So, yes, Howie, in answer to your question, I will be measuring um, Good. the fielding side of things. So I'm yet to come up with an actual rock-solid <laughs> Model. I wouldn't have called last year's model rock solid, but I enjoyed it. <laughs> the other thing I enjoyed, and you did an outstanding work on the Big Bash, and as I said, people just loved you for it. Um, for those that aren't aware, there was a certain <laughs> certain incident at the Gabba Roy pre-game when you were out uh, and the bowlers were working through their run-ups, and they often paint their run-ups with a little paint tin roy out on the ground. Yes. Do you recall this incident? I do. And for the life of me, I can't work out why there was a camera on me at this point. The game hadn't started. I was just out in the middle, wandering out in the middle to go and have a look at the wicket and catch up with a couple of old mates. In your nice khaki trousers. <laughs> yes, in my khaki chinos. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I, I – well, the paint – there's a little bucket of paint that was actually on the advertising sign, which is – which sort of blended into the – the paint bucket itself, and I didn't see it. And Brad Haddon was coming over to to, to sort of say good day, and that we we're going to have a yarn. And I, I, as I went to reach out and shake his hand, I've kicked this paint tin, and it's gone all over my shoe and up my leg. And for some unknown reason, there was a camera on me. Yes, there was. And um, yeah, everyone's yeah. When when Roy gets hurt or Roy does something silly, everyone seems to find it twice as funny as when it happens to someone else. So, so yeah, I. Oh, yeah, they were living off that for a while. Was, yeah, no, I yeah. think it... Whenever rat- they got bored or something wasn't happening, they'd just show that. That's right. Well, the game would be slow. Let's roll yeah. in Roy in the paint tin. Yeah. Where did it all start for you, Roy? You weren't actually born in Australia. No, I was uh, I was born in England. Yep. Uh, I'm an adopted child. I was born in uh, Birmingham. Right. And I was adopted by my mum and dad, Ken and Barbara, when I was about eight weeks old. And um, it's funny because... Um, Mum tells a story. She goes, she went to the clinic to pick me up and um, they said, look, you can just take him home for a, a week or so and just do, sort of trial him. If he's no good, you can bring him back. A test run. Yeah, get a test, a test drive. So anyway, <laughs> apparently I went home that first week and all, all I did was cry. I was just a mongrel child for that whole week. <laughs> anyway, so mum, go, mum and dad go back into the clinic and go, yeah, yeah, he's a good kid, we'll take him. <laughs> And, um, yeah, so ever since then, um, yeah, I've, mum, and dad, mum and dad are mum and dad. So I've never uh, I've never sort of had any contact from my natural parents. Um, and and so, I don't really care to because I don't, I don't sort of see them as mum and dad. Mum and dad are mum and dad. I sort of don't know any better, I suppose. It's really interesting. We, we did an episode with Lane Beachley Roy a couple yep. of series ago, um, and being adopted has been a massive, massive, massive part of her life and, and the search for where she came from. And mm. it's interesting when you speak to people in your position, some, it, it becomes ingrained of them and some are almost ambivalent towards it, which is what you seem to be. Yeah, I, and I, yeah it's, it's, it's fascinating. I, I actually know Lane, but I, I didn't know that she was adopted as well. Um, but, yeah, it can be, it can be very sort of tra- traumatic for people, I suppose. Uh, fortunately not for me. You know, mum and dad have, have, have done a great job with us kids and given us all amazing opportunities. So, yeah, I um, fortunately I haven't had that, had any dramas like that. So, uh, what, what Do you know where your heritage is from? Yeah, I, I'm 
Anglo West Indian. Okay. English West Indian. So, but as as the uh, the great Jimmy Marr, he calls me the Anglo West Indian, brought up in the towers, um, Chartist towers. That is. Um, so, yeah, he he. Um, that's his spin on it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, I suppose. But I came to Australia uh, when I was eighteen months old. Okay. And then yeah, so. Me and mum and dad emigrated to Australia, and dad was a, a teacher, a boarding house uh, master and deputy principal and that sort of thing growing up. So we got uh, the run of all the school grounds and that because a lot of the times we'd be – dad would have a house living on the, on the campus, so we had access to, to the nets and the indoor sports centres and we'd get the high jump mats out in the weekend and practice our high jump and the school swimming pool and the gymnasium, and so it was – it was good times growing up as a kid. We had we had all that sort of all those facilities basically free of charge, and Dad would you know take us in and let us play sport, and you know it was it was a really it was a really good environment to grow up in because we, we were never bored. You'd just get on your push bike and go, and you'd you'd be on the campus all day. And in school holidays, it was the same, you know. And you just um, you know the other boys would be down the other houses, and you'd go and ride down there and have you'd only come home if you were hungry or thirsty but usually you'd just go to the closest house and eat there so have you have you ever thought what would happen roy if you got a phone call or a letter in your yeah. life yeah oh i have yeah but I, I i would just deal with it at that point I, yeah. i'm not uh, i'm not hung up on any of it all no, now it, it's not um it's not something i've ever lost sleep over so I, yeah if, if i ever got a phone call or or a letter or something, I'd, yeah, I'd just, I'd just take the call or write a letter back or whatever. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll cross that bridge if, if I ever come to it. Back to Roy Boy in a sec. Last week on the Howie Games, we featured NBA Rookie of the Year, Ben Simmons. How do you keep grounded in what is, again, from the outside, looking in a crazy yeah. world? A crazy I think, world. I think just appreciating everything that's in front of me and uh, knowing it can be all gone quickly. And uh, knowing, you know, it's it's one of those things where you gotta be very appreciative of everything around you, the people um, and the situation you're in because it could be a lot worse. Do you ever sit back and pinch yourself and say, is this really happening? Definitely, you know, I tell my friends all the time, I was like, do you guys think it's weird that I play in the NBA? Like, <laughs> I definitely think it is, uh, but it's really cool. That's Ben Simmons on last week's ep. Back to Roy. So you came out to Australia and I think your family spent some time in Geelong and then in Ballarat and then you ended up in Queensland. Where did your love of the great outdoors come to you? Because you always strike me as a man that is at its happiest when you're out fishing or out hunting or out bush. Yeah, I I suppose as a kid, a lot of our family holidays were camping and... Dad was a dad was a passionate fisherman, and and a lot of our, the friends that we used to go camping with were all fishermen and and uh, enjoyed the bush. So, from a very young age, um, it was sort of in me, I suppose. And I still I could never ever think of about life without that for me. You know, that's my my release. And I, you know, once you once you're in the bush, it's it's uh, you can't be annoyed by phones and you know and these sorts of things. You know, it's just my way of unwinding um and i find it fascinating and you know fishing and hunting it's 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 a challenge i suppose you know catching trying to catch that that fish of a lifetime is is something that you strive i strive to do sort of you know 
every week of my life if, if I can get on the water. Have you caught it yet, the fish of the lifetime? I'm hoping not, no. No. <laughs> no, I'm always striving to find one bigger and better and people say, where's your favourite fishing spot? And so I say, often say, I said, I hope I, hope I, haven't, found, I haven't found it yet. Where's but, um, uh, in your garage? How many fishing rods you got in there? Oh, there'd probably there'd be a couple of hundred, I suppose. A couple of hundred fishing rods. Yeah, I, yeah, I'd be, yeah, well over a hundred. Anyway, I haven't counted them, but wow. Yeah, I, that's I, almost I, um, an obsession. It is. Yeah, I'll, I've I've got a um a uh, sort of uh, an ambassador role with Pure Fishing with sort of Penn, Berkeley, Abu, all those sorts of brands, and they send me a lot of gear to trial and use, and um, you know get pictures with and that sort of thing, and. Um, so I'm in a fortunate situation there tackle-wise. You know, I've sort of got that under control and then I've just um, become an ambassador for uh, hummingbird sounders and uh, GPS you know, units. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to doing a bit with them and, um, yeah, their, their equipment is unbelievable. So hopefully my fishing will improve off the, on the back of that. Where'd you start playing cricket? Was it the backyard? Was it with your parents? Where, where'd yeah. you first get introduced to the game that shaped your life, Roy? Yeah, d- Dad. Um, without, you know, obviously without your parents, I'd, I'd be nothing. But my old man's dedication to me becoming the cricketer I was, was his pure hard work. He used to throw balls for me, Howie, probably five or six days a week, morning and night. Wow. Um, before and after school. And that, for me, was um, instrumental in, in, I suppose, becoming good enough player to be able to go on and play first-class cricket and then on to play international cricket. So, you know, I'm forever um, grateful what, you know, Dad especially, you know, Mum hell of a lot as well, but Dad's just pure um, passion from his, wanting his son to have an opportunity was was incredible. So he had, um, he had the biggest knot in his forearm for years just from throwing cricket balls at me and... Um, <laughs> Yeah, he was. Uh, I'm surprised he didn't hurt. You know, do a shoulder or something. I look back and on the amount of balls he would have thrown at me it was, it was quite phenomenal that he never was never injured. You know, so yeah, yeah, it was. It's it. It was a. I suppose a pretty special uh, bond that Dad and I had. You know, we had some. We had some fierce battles in the nets. You know, slanging matches and so. You know, I just. I just get the shit here one day and just go, Dad, not today. I just had enough, and you know, walk out of the nets and. He would try again that afternoon, you know. But um, as I said, living on the school grounds, those opportunities were very, um, I suppose, gettable because the facilities were just there. We just walk out of the house and walk down the nets, and, and it was on. So, yeah, great times growing up as a kid with just the stuff that I had at my fingertips it was great fun. My six-year-old Roy uh, Mac, or the big penguin, as you know, to audiences <laughs> of this show. Um, Played his first game last week in the under-11s yep. as a six-year-old. Had some concerns about where to put his box and put her on his knee first up, Roy, which was uh, not the ideal scenario. But <laughs> this Friday, so the day after this episode goes to air, we need to go and get him some gear because he had to borrow some pads and he couldn't make his way down the wicket because they were up to his shoulders, Roy. They were that big, but he's going to get his first bat on yep. Friday and that'll be almost four sleepless nights for him. Do you remember what your first bat was? First bat, yes, I do. What'd you get? It was a, it was a, a Simmons Tusker. I've still got it. Have you? Yep, still got it. My son will probably use it soon. The Simmons Tusker. Yes, I've still got the bat. It's, it's, it's quite heavily taped in the, the bottom, the 
right-hand toe of the bat is heavily worn, but uh, it was the first proper bat I ever had, and I've still got it there. So, yeah, hopefully young Billy will be using that in the next couple of years. He's actually just started playing cricket this season. He's had um, a couple of weeks of the sort of um, that introduction, introductory cricket. And um, How would you find it watching? Yeah, good, good. He, he goes all right, actually, because I play with him a fair bit at home, so... He's learning to bowl properly and uh, and he hits the ball quite well. Uh, he's he's only he's only four, but but he's um he's not a bad little kid. He's, he's he loves cricket and he loves football. Um, and his mother doesn't want him to play football. But you're talking rugby league now. Yeah, she doesn't want him playing league. But there's going to have to be a conversation had in the next probably eighteen months, I suppose. How do you reckon I, that'll go, Roy? Oh, I reckon I'll probably come second, but <laughs> I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to give try it your and best shot. Give was it my best shot for him. Looking back at that at that early stage as a cricket and your and your your Simmons Tusker and are, are those still magical times in your mind? Because it's a it's a different game cricket that it, it can just grab hold of young people. Just really yeah. grab hold of them. Well it was it was it was my life because remember we dad signed me up to play for Wanderers in Townsville, but we lived in Charters Tower. So oh. every weekend, dad would drive me an hour and a half into town to play cricket. And if it rained and cricket got called off, well, I was just a mongrel child for that weekend because I hadn't had my cricket fix. <laughs> Mum, I just drive mum up the wall, eh? And she, she'd be, yeah, rolling pin stuff, you know? I, I'd just, <laughs> I'd just a torment poor mum, and she'd go, wait till your father gets home. <laughs> And I said, no, no, just belt me now. I don't want Dad having anything to do with it. He doesn't need to know. <laughs> so where, yeah. do you recall your first 100? Not really. No, right. I reckon oh, it might have been, it was at All Souls in Charters Towers, and I reckon we were playing Blackheath and Thornborough. And I reckon I might have got, I reckon I might have got 115 or 117 or something like that. It was in a school game, I think. So how old would you have been then? I would have been probably ten, ten, I suppose, something like that. But I, yeah, were you better? Were you a, were you a Ricky Ponting style that was a standout, or were you a middling kid that eventually became a good cricketer? Yeah, I was. I wasn't. Um, yeah, I wasn't the best player by any means. You know, I was yeah middle of the road um, sort of player, but. Obviously, with all the training and that, I sort of, over time, I sort of, I suppose, became better just through sheer volume of, of balls I was hitting, I suppose. And then, but when I when I first broke into the Queensland side, um, I found it really hard to to be consistent. You know, opposition sides had worked me out and what have you, and I was, I was finding it really hard to score consistent runs. And I nearly, I, I remember, I nearly got dropped from the side when uh, Matty Hayden took me under his wing. And he said, "Mate, what what are you doing? What are you not doing now that you did when you were a kid? Because when you were a kid, you scored lots of runs." And he said, "He said, try this. He said, you need to hit more balls, lot more balls." So he started work. We started working together, sort of before training. We'd go in and have a bat for a couple of hours, and we we're hitting a lot more balls on the machine. I was hitting, you know, probably two thousand balls a week or something like that. More maybe some weeks, but and then I became better. Uh, in a in the first class arena because I was actually working on exactly how teams were going to bowl at me, so I was actually match ready 
when I went out in the middle, I knew how what their their plan was pretty much going to be. So, and then from from that point on, uh, I sort of started to become more consistent, and then I, I became a better player through that. So I, I actually sort of basically went back to what I did when I was a kid, um, hitting more balls because you go to training, you know, two or three times a week with the shield side, and you you'd probably only get an hour's batting in the nets because you'd have twenty minutes. Of batting, all the batters had to get through, and then mm. you'd go and bowl. So, you know, an hour's batting a week for a professional sports for a professional cricketer wasn't enough. So, we I started working, you know, a lot more, um, sort of behind the scenes, doing extra work with Maddie, and it, and and it paid off big time. Did you have a job at, at any stage when you're leaving school and you're becoming a cricketer? I did. I had I had bits and pieces jobs. I was a groundsman at my old school for a bit. You know, oh. making cricket pitches and on the track to mowing um, sports fields and marking lines and doing that sort of thing. but Well, not with the paint. <laughs> yeah. Yes, with the paint. So that was that was probably the only real job I ever had. I didn't – and then I went – when I left school, I went to the cricket academy and then when I came back from the cricket academy, I was sort of bits and pieces, jobs. And, what yeah, type and of then, bits and pieces? Well, just oh, – as I said, just ground, a groundsman um, – but I never did a trade. I didn't, didn't Sparky, Chippy, and I didn't do anything like that. And I never went to university, so uh, I was, I was lucky in the fact that I was able to make a living out of cricket. I mean, obviously, you didn't get paid a hell of a lot, but it was enough. I was living at home, so you know, I'm living at home and, and making a few bob playing shield cricket. Um, what was it like walking into that Queensland side for the first time? Was the great Alan Border still yeah. there? Yep. Yeah, AB was um, – yeah, I used, used to ogle at him. I, you know, he'd be – he was – so when I first sort of got in the Shield side, he, he wasn't around a lot because he was away playing for Australia. But then when he was – when he did come back and he was at training and that, I, I'd find myself just sort of sitting there staring at him um, and, and – um, just mesmerised by the man, you know, and, and uh, he, um, we actually became very good friends because when I first sort of got into the Shield side, he'd retired from international cricket and he came back to play a couple of years for Queensland. So I actually got, I was roommates with AB for, for a couple of seasons. Were you really? Yeah. So it was myself and Matthew Mott. So it was par and, it was par and the kids. So <laughs> they put us two young blokes with AB and, um, yeah, so we got to know him really well and, um. Yeah, it was, and and it was great times. We still we still laugh about some of the things that you know the boys used to say, and and um, I remember the, the one. I'll tell you a story about AB. This is this is a, the type of man he is, right? So he's he's retired from international cricket, and he's he's forty years of age, right? So he's come back and played for his state. I thought it's it's that's commendable in itself. Anyway, so we're playing in Melbourne. And a bloke by the name of Brad Williams played a few tests for Australia, played a few oh, games. London, really fast. Yes, blob and fast, yes. And he's hit AB on the on the forearm here, right on, the, on that bony bit there when he was on about, I reckon he's about 10 or 12. And, and, you know, Brad's down there snorting and spitting and, you know, in AB's face and AB's told him, you know, get going, young fella, you know, piss off. Anyway, so AB bats for another, I don't know, probably two or three hours. And uh, comes off the, he gets out, comes off the ground, goes to the physio. I said, "Oh, he'll hit my, he's hit me on the arm, and it's a bit sore." Anyway, there's a big lump on his arm here now, and he goes, "Mate, I reckon you need to go for an X-ray on that." And unbeknownst to, to us, 
he'd, he'd broken his arm when he was on 12 when he went on and batted and made 80. Wow. And, um, yeah, so, yeah, fiercely competitive AB and, and tough and resilient and all all those things that you, you hear about him are true. They're very accurate. He's um he's a, he's a favourite of mine. There's so many, and you'll be working with him at Fox. He's, he's a big part yep. of Fox cricket, obviously. There's so many highlights of your cricket career that, Roy, if we went through them all, um, we'd be here and you'll miss your flight that you've got to get to. So there's a few things I want to talk to you about. You, you made your way into the one-day side, and I can clearly remember watching this match. It was the World Cup. Uh, would have been 2003. Australia yep. was playing Pakistan. And I was actually I actually wrote it down because I was watching the highlights last night, Roy, on YouTube. You were coming out to bat, and I reckon it was Mark Taylor commentating. But yep. this is what he said. As you were coming out about Andrew Simons is the new man out in the middle for the wondrous ground for Australia. His average is 23.8. It's not bad. It's higher than I thought it was going to be, to be totally honest. Best <laughs> of 68, but in recent times it has been lean pickings. Batting at six in this match, no Darren Lehman and no Michael Bevan. You were, I reckon, Roy, hanging on by your fingernails in the Australian side at that stage. Warney had gone home due to the diuretic situation, yep. I presume. Yeah, he went home the night before that game. Did he Did he sit down and tell you guys? How did that yeah. unfold? The, 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 two, the night before the first game, we were all getting dressed, ready to go out for tea, and uh, there was a meeting, a late meeting call. We were thinking, oh, what's this all about? Anyway, so we all up in the manager's um, room, and um, Warney comes out and goes, right, boys, I've got something to tell you. I said, uh, I've taken a diuretic, and I'm, I'm going to test positive um, to a banned substance, and we're all sort of. Just let you, someone had hit hit us in the face with a dead fish. Well, you just looked around the room, and everyone was speechless, going, "Right, so our best players going home now, and we play that. We play Pakistan tomorrow in the first game of the World Cup. Darren Lehman's out suspended. Michael Bevan's torn his groin, and Andrew Simons probably shouldn't even be on the tour. <laughs> um, but here I am, thanks to Buchanan and Ponting, wanted me in the side, so. Um. Yes, that was. Uh, was it emotional when he was delivering? Yeah, it was. It was. It was. It was nearly. It was nearly as if it was a bad dream. You know what I mean? We're sort of sitting there, and we're sort of thinking, right. So what happens now? And then you could sense, I suppose, in the coming the days after that, you could sense that all the other teams around the world thought, right, this is our chance to get these blokes. You got two. Two of their best batsmen out. Uh, Warren's gone home. They've got to be shot. They've got to be feeling it, you know, morale-wise. They've got to be down. And enter the fray, Brad Hogg, Andy Bickle. Um, Brad Hogg, I reckon, to me, is one of the most unsung short-form cricketers that we've ever had. I reckon he's up there with our best white ball bowlers of all time. He was um, he was a terrific player. Andy Bickle just didn't stop trying. Uh, he's a great team man. He thought of him self selfless uh, thought of someone else before himself all the time he was he was great like to have on tour um, and then we went into this world cup and blokes like that really shone and played some incredible cricket um, as did you Roy as I said you're walking out to the middle um, probably fair to say if it wasn't for Rick who always wanted you in the side mm. you might not have been on the tour you're walking out to bat against Pakistan. Australia was, I don't know, lots for not many. <laughs> Take us back there. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I was that nervous walking out there that day, and I, I sort of, um, 
I can't actually really rem- really remember who I actually walked out to bat with. That's that's how um, how nervous I was. I sort of I'd have to watch it back um, to give you a sort of probably a really accurate assessment. But mm. I remember early in my innings, I was sort of playing and missing a bit, and then I got one. I got a nice off drive away off. I think it was uh, Razak or someone like that between cover and mid off. And so I they, of, they had Razak, they had Wazi Makran, they had uh, was it uh, Waka Yunus was probably playing, was he? Yes, Waka well. and so Shaw. And Shaw, this is your top line Pakistani attack here. Yeah, yeah, and I, I'd always had trouble with Wazi Makran. Or he just used to hit me on the front pad and just LBW up for fun. So. Yeah, I was, and you could you could imagine everyone's going right. We're we're gone here. Simon's has come out. He averages twenty three. No hope. We'll be five for a no time. But we yeah we got a bit of a partnership going, and um, one of the I suppose the more memorable moments of that particular day was um, Wacker Eunice bowled me a beamer, and it was right on the money. Like it was, it would have hit me in the head, and I got out of the road of it, and he's come down. He said sorry, blah blah blah, and I thought yeah righty okay. Whatever, mate, just <laughs> things happen. Anyway, so I don't know. Shortly, I can't remember if it was his next spell, but anyway, he's come on and bowled me another one a bit later in the day, and I've I've seen red. I've lost it. I've gone right. I'm I'm going down the. I'm going to punch him. That's that's how I'm feeling. <laughs> so I'm going down the wicket, and David Shepherd, the great late David Shepherd, is umpiring, and. Um, all I can hear is, Simo, it's all right, Simo. So no, Simo, don't do that. Simo. And I'm trying to get it uh, at um, Wacker and um, Chep's sort of in between us trying to sort of don't do anything stupid, basically, Roy, you know. And uh, he sort of so he's got me, sort of talked me down and every, the game continued on. And um, so I can remember another moment in that game which was because I'd had as I said earlier I'd had problems with Wazzy Macram over the years I remember I hit him for six over mid on late in that late in that innings and I, I, I to this day it was one of my most enjoyable shots I reckon because huh. he was a thorn in my side for, for many years and I smacked him over mid on I thought yep have some of that I really that was a a split second that I really enjoyed. Have some of that. So you you made 143. That will be it. That is a brilliant one-day hundred for Andrew Simons. His first for Australia. It's history that Australia went on and won that World Cup. You're a massive part of that. What? How does it change your attitude at the elite level, Roy, when all of a sudden you have a performance and you find some confidence and you, you probably yeah. start to feel like you're fit? Yeah, well, that... That particular innings was was life changing for me as a player because I now had proof and I now had a method to how to go about scoring my runs and forever I was forever going back to that innings if I was struggling I was I'd look back at you know what I ate how I prepared you know you know all that sort of thing so it was it was um it was like my roadmap to to batting success I had a formula. And that was what I sort of always modelled my my innings as on. I'd go back to that or think of a particular part of that innings, which which would help me, you know, forever for the rest of my career. So, how did you deal with the flip side of it, which at international sport everyone goes through? How did you deal with failure when you're on the other side of the world? You're locked up in a hotel room and your place is in jeopardy, mate. Basically, I'd train harder um, and try and, and smarter. So I'd just have a bit of a review of what I was doing 
and what I should have maybe been doing better or whatever, and I just tweak it a bit. Um, yeah, training. You know, over the years I end up, I end up getting a lot fitter and a lot stronger. I, my training diversified. I trained with the Broncos quite a bit, um, so just becoming more powerful, more dynamic. Um, I wouldn't. Um, I'd run twice a day for sort of eight weeks leading up to pre-season. I'd just completely strip my weight off before pre-season started, and then I'd I'd be I'd be really fit and ready to go as soon as it started. Um, so yeah, just getting smarter and um, stronger, faster. You know, looking after myself um, dietary wise, eating the right food and everything. So I gave myself the best chance once it came to to go time. You won a couple of World Cups, Roy, 2003, 2007, I think 2003. It might have been, we did an episode with Damien Martin. I think he might have batted with a busted finger, made a lot of runs. What What is it like when you win a World Cup? Well, that that 2003 World Cup, I reckon it's, for me, it's the best tour I ever went on. Um, just, I think, through what we went through with losing Warney and having um, Bull and Bevo out for the first part of the tournament, we went through that tournament undefeated and... Mate, we trained hard, and when we won, we partied hard, and it was that was all above board. The coach, manager, everyone was cool with it. Um, you know, we'd have our night out, big night. Next day, boom, in the pool in the morning, back in the training, reset, get ready for the next game, and it was just um, it was just a magic magic tour. Everyone had a great time. That I've never been in a tighter. That unit was tight, really tight. You were doing a David Shepherd before you spent a lot of time in England so it'll be at this stage Roy where I say to you for those that haven't heard it and you're shaking your head I'd like to hear some Jeffrey Boycott oh, mate I, Laura said to me the other day she goes you should do more of that yes, I said I, I I don't do it anymore because I don't practice it I used to practice it and I used to listen to him commentating so then I would have his one-liners and the boys would get me to do it after we'd played a game. So if someone had had a bad day, you know, Hados has got a duck or something, he slog one up in the air. And he said, now, Matty Hayden, you slogger. The stupid shot, straight up in the air, out. Not on, Matthew. Stupid. <laughs> That's all I'm giving you, Howie. <laughs> I reckon Laura's right, mate. I reckon Big Bash game runs 40 overs. I reckon you could do an innings, says Jeffrey Boy. No, I think you could with a bit of preparation, a bit of planning. I need some preparation. <laughs> hey, mate, you mentioned. The Brisbane Broncos. This is urban legend number two. We've got the fishing boat that did sink. Urban legend number two. Did you approach Wayne Bennett about playing professional rugby league? Yes, I did. Um, Why? It was, well, because my cricket, um, as I said to you earlier, my consistency on the cricket field was non-existent and... I hadn't sort of worked out a method and I was on the verge of being dropped from the Queensland side, I reckon, and this is when I got together with Matty Hayden and started getting things back on track. Um, but I went to Benny just before that World Cup in 2003 because I'd been training with him and I said to him, I said, look, I'm not sure if this cricket thing, I'm, I've got the knack, I've got the hang of it. I said, really? would you consider um, me trying to go down the path of playing football? And he goes... Are you serious? I said, deadly. This is Wayne Bennett? Yes. And so he said, right, well, listen, just finish this, play this, finish your cricket season, and then at the end of that, if you're 100% sure that's the road you want to go down, come and see me and we'll work out what you've got to do next. And then 
yeah, it would have been probably, what, two months later, I'm on this World Cup trip. 100 against Pakistan, and my life changed. So that was that was the extent of the conversation. I, once I came back from the World Cup, um, I didn't exercise that thought ever again. Huh. We're skipping around a bit here. You played county cricket in England, Roy, and made a lot of runs. A lot, a lot, a lot of runs. And all of a sudden, it became a talking point that England could potentially pick you and you would have to choose whether you were going to play for England or play for Australia, which is really nice when you've got two employees both uh, chasing you. Must oh, have been well, a difficult time as a young man. Well, it was, it was media, it was media driven. Obviously, the media drummed it right up because you know having a British passport, I was basically playing as a local over there. So, so you weren't they, you weren't an overseas player when you no, were playing for your county, right? No, I could I could come in on my English passport and play as a local. So, um, that was, um, I suppose, frustrating people a bit. So they selected me on an England A tour. Um, that year to obviously test me out to see where my allegiance lied, and when it when it obviously start when it obviously first broke, you know obviously the Australian media interest in what was happening and what my decision was going to be, but mate, I'd I'd barely I'd barely played a game for Queensland, you know. So it, the Australian selectors were sort of well, it's up to him, you know, what he wants to do, but I was n- not even on the not even on the map to be selected for Australia. So, but as a child, uh, my childhood dream was to was to play for Australia, and you know I declined the the offer, um, and yeah, I, I didn't didn't see it any other way really. That's so, I was so over. You, di- you, di- you didn't think about it because at that stage Australian cricket was on top of the world. English cricket was struggling. Your path to international cricket would have most likely been a lot shorter if you'd worn the three lines. Oh, you would probably think so, Howie. Yes, but yeah. that was not where my allegiance lied, and that wasn't my passion. Wow. Um, that would have been—I mean, it would have been purely a a well, selfish monetary decision to 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 go that way, in my opinion. And I, and that's not the way I wanted to do it. I wanted to try and you know break into that Queensland side and, and maybe one day play for Australia, which you did. Where does ink cream come from? I uh, just. Growing up, uh, I had bad, bad lips. My lips had split in the sun in the north and I remember the bronze ink um, would get on our white shirt. You'd wipe your face and you'd get on your shirt. So mum went, that can't be happening. I can't be scrubbing these because probably some days you'd play Saturday and Sunday. So she's <laughs> washing clothes and she said, why don't we, why don't we go the white stuff? Then that's not as, not as damaging. So, yeah, that's where that all started. And the dreadlocks, I don't recall any other Australian test cricketer. There may be. Obviously, um, Funky Miller had the blue hair, the red hair, the green hair, the pink hair. I, I Still to mine, you may tell me different that you may have been the only man to wear a bag green with dreadlocks. Um, I can't think of any I others. Think, yeah, I think you might be right. Yeah. Yeah, no, I just... I don't know. I just went through a phase or I just let my hair grow and then they started to sort of um, mat together and I thought... Well, I'll just go with it. <laughs> so I never actually – I did it all myself. And then once – when we went to the Caribbean in 2007, I got one of the local girls there to give me the proper beeswax and did the whole lot properly. And it was – um, yeah, it was better. But, yeah, it was a pretty pretty rough old show, that the dreadlocks. <laughs> the baggy green, do you know where it is still? Have you got it home? 
My, I do. My son is actually right into his cricket at the moment, and he's got it in his bedroom. It's on his bedside table. Fantastic. What, what, is it, what does it and what did it mean to you when you were presented with it for the first time? Well, as I said to you, Alan Border, at the start of the interview, um, he gave me my bag of green when I played my first test in Sri Lanka. Did he really? Yeah. So. And is it as a special moment as people talk about? It is, yeah. You want to get it on your head, and it, it didn't come off my head for, yeah, the, the week. You know, it was just, and I, um, with the spinners over there, I'd, as soon as I two spinners came on, I'd take my helmet off and I wanted to wear my baggy green to bat. So, um, and it stopped me playing that stupid sweep shot that I wasn't very good at too. So I thought a top edge in the face to stand up and hit the ball down the ground, Andrew. So, <laughs> so yeah, I, I, um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't wear a, um, uh, floppy hat at all in, in my career. I wore my baggy green to field in, uh, religiously. The other innings I'd like to talk to you about, you had some massive success at Boxing Day. Um, you, you did well against the South Africans when, you again, your career was under the pump. But I, I guess from the outside, I don't know the way you view it. We talked about the innings versus Pakistan. But uh, Boxing Day against the Poms will be oh, 2000, was it? Seven, to the yeah. seven, somewhere around yeah, there. Yeah, about that. Yep. Again, Simons is not probably established in the side. Comes in at five for eighty-four and played one of the most entertaining innings that crowd's ever witnessed, mate. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, I was under the pump big time then. I reckon if I didn't score any runs in that test, I was probably going to be gone. Well, I got one more chance, but I was probably going to be gone. And um, I, remember, I remember I walked out the bat, and I remember Hados was out there. And Hados just got 100 on Boxing Day. That was just his Christmas present to himself. <laughs> he just got one every year. And um, so he's he's deeply entrenched in this battle. And Kevin Peterson walks past me and goes, what did he say? He said, what are you doing out here? You're, in this, you're only supposed to be in this team for fielding <laughs> or something like this. And anyway, Hados just saw red and just went for him. So for the next three overs, him and Hados were just going for it. And it, it sort of... And, I, and then by this stage, I'd sort of snuck. I'd got a couple away and I was playing and missing and KP's in him and Hados is walking down into him. And I'm, I'm thinking, how good is this? This is, this is great because, um, you know, two good mates out in the middle of the MCG on Boxing Day and getting sledged by one of the poms and Hados sledging him back. And I'm thinking, this is good. And then um, I remember Hados got to 100 and it was like he'd scored 50. He just went, yep, thanks. I'm down there, I'm going, mate, well done, how good's that? He goes, mate, keep going, okay, keep going, you head down, blah, blah, I'm thinking, okay. So he was he focused was, on you? He was more worried about getting me away and going than him. What a good bloke. And obviously the cause, because as you said, we're what, four or five for 80 or something, so we're in trouble. And they've all got their, the, the Poms have got their tails up and Freddie's flying in and Harmison and these blokes. So we had a we had a bit of a job on our hands, so... Um, and then anyway, I remember got to 50 and I thought, oh, that's, that's all right, that's all right. I've still got, you know, we've still got a lot to do here. And and then um, we'd sort of seen, we'd got through the, the worst of it, I suppose. And um, so we'd, we'd dealt with Harmison and Flintoff and Hoggard and these blokes. And then, you know, the old Paul Collingwood comes on, you know, the, the old little wobblers and, you know, I'm thinking, don't go and get caught at mid-off here now, will you, stupid? You know, ball on the ground. Hados, he's going, mate. This is this is when stupid stuff happens. Now concentrate. <laughs> so I'm I'm batting. I'm trying to bat properly. You know, playing straight. And I got to. I remember I was on about. I must. I got into the nineties. 
and I sort of I went down the third man and I, I sort of thought, all right, so I'm a 90, I think I was on 94 and Collingwood comes on and I uh, thought mid on, mid off, up. I'm thinking if he does slip one up there, I think I'm going to have to take him over the top. That'll just be, <laughs> no, that'll be, no it's single. a straight shot. I'm not going to try and swipe mid wicket or anything like that. I'm going to go straight. And sure enough, three balls later, you know, I got one in my arc and it was sort of middle and leg and it wasn't quite full enough, Howie, but I let go of the bat with my bottom hand and followed through and it went over mid on for six. And then I am cock-a-hoot. Oh, the, just the emotion, you could just feel it just from my toes to my ears. Oh, I was just unbelievable, just emotion, unbelievable emotion. So I ran and my grandfather used to watch, come to the test match and watch me bat or come to the, watch me play and he'd passed away that previous year. So I give him a bit of a one of those and then I ran. I remember running to Hados. And I jumped up on him and I, I sort of cr- grabbed his head and just squeezed him as hard as I could. And he's, he's I, I couldn't hear him. He's all muffled because his helmet's been pushed into his face. He's going, yeah, yeah, mate, yeah, suck it up. Just enjoy that. Get it, get it, get it in here. <laughs> and I was, I was, I'm walking around thinking how good. And the crowd just went crazy. They went crazy. They were, they were so good to me. And um, anyway, so that later on that night, I, um, I'm in the dressing room there. I'm having a drink and I'm thinking, I look across at Hados and he's got this... He's got this huge, big red mark on his forehead. I said, what happened to you? He goes, it was you, you, you dickhead. When you got your 100, you just crushed my helmet onto my head that hard. You give me a bit like, like blood blister on his forehead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. Mate, the, um, you've had some incredible highs. And I, I talked to you about at this start that most people's story that have any success in life has highs and it has lows. It, it's still talked about now um, what happened in the test match, the New Year's Day test match in Sydney between you and Harbajan. And, and a lot of people put it down to the fact that in some ways you fell out of love with the game at that time. Is that the way you see it? Or, or not. There, yeah. there, was, there was talk of, uh, of racial taunts. Harbajan was suspended. Um, it was an incredible test match. I reckon you made a lot of runs in the first innings and Clarkie got three for in the last over. Um, yeah. It was an amazing test match, but some saw that as the beginning and the end for you. Yeah, that, which was spot on. Like I, I've spoken to Punter about it and he sort of said, yeah, that was, mate, that was the beginning, beginning of the end because I'd spoken to Harbajan the series before in India He'd called me a monkey in India, and I went into the. It was after it was a one day international, and I went into the. I knocked on their door and I went into the dressing room. I said, "Can I speak to Harbajan for a minute outside, please?" So he came outside, and I said, "Look, I said the name calling's got to stop because it's going to get out of hand. You know, we've got a few names for you, blokes, and you've obviously got a few for us, and that's all good, but it's going to end in tears. So let's knock it on the head." And then we shook hands. He said, "Yep, no problem." He said, "No problem, boss. All, all good." He went back into the rooms. I went back into, my, into our rooms and then the following series, the test series back in Australia, the New Year's test it was, um, 
he's tapped Brett Lee on the on the bum with his bat because we're trying to we're trying to hurt him. We're trying to break ribs and fingers, and we're trying to sort of maybe take him out of the game because it was going to spin. And so Bing is trying to trying to kill him basically, and um, he tapped him. He knocked one down a fine leg off his sort of shoulder sort of thing, and, and he ran past Binger. He tapped him on the on the bum with his bat, and I said, and I sort of saw it, and I sort of thought, I said, listen here. Listen here, dickhead. We're not here to make friends. You're about to get hurt here. And then he, and then he started. And he goes, "Oh, you're nothing but a monkey." Blah blah blah. And then he said it probably two or three times. And all the well, there was Hayden heard it, Clark heard it, uh, Gilchrist heard it, and I heard it. And then the end of that over, Punter said, "That's enough." And Michael Clark had told Punter what had happened, and so Punter went, right, that's enough. He ran off the field and reported it to the, the Australian um, manager, Steve Bernard, mm-hmm. um, and he reported it to the match referee who was um, Mike Proctor. And from that moment on, I suppose, yeah, that was my sort of downhill slide. But that whole process, um, you know, we just didn't get the support of, of the Australian Cricket Board. You know, we they were trying to get us to downgrade the charge and India had threatened to go home, so, they, you know, they stood to lose... Tens, twenty, thirty millions of dollars, and so it became a political problem. Um, and you know, I started to drink heavily as a result of it. Um, and then you know, my cricket started to sort of my life was starting to dissolve around me. So, um, you know, and I felt the pressure, the weight of dragging those five mates of mine into the to the sort of cauldron of this cesspit that was it, it should never have got. To, you should never never have got to this sort of point where um, we felt guilty. You know, we we sit down at the start of every season. We go through the drugs and the racist stuff and all this. You sit down and sign bits of paper and yep, we do all that. And then when it actually came to the crunch, um, yeah, we got we got heavily let down. We didn't get the support we needed. We we're up. Me and Punter were up there one night, the night before the Adelaide Test till one o'clock in the morning, talking to our solicitor and and what have you. So it was um. It was tricky times, and I, I was dealing with it the wrong way, and and um, just through, I felt guilty that I, I dragged my mates into something that I didn't think they deserved to be involved in. I, I think from memory, Roy um, Harvajan got suspended for three matches originally, and then the pressure came on politically, as you said. India talked about going home. Um, there was tremendous pressure on everybody, I guess. It was on the front page of the paper and then his uh, suspension was downgraded. How do you reflect on how you felt at the time when his charges were, his uh, penalty was downgraded? Oh, look, I did. Oh, I wasn't um, I wasn't particularly bothered in how he got p- punished. I, I was sort of, um, yeah, that was sort of nearly irrelevant to me. It was just more the... I wasn't thinking about that. I was thinking about what I was going through and what I'd put the other boys through. Um, so it was it was not so much that. It was – that was your punishment's your punishment. He got one game and I think he got fined 10 grand or something like that in the end. But um, that was neither here nor there with me. It was more the the weight of the responsibility of what we'd, we'd all been dragged into. And then, you know – Politically, you don't. I didn't realise how politically powerful, I suppose, I was at that point. Mm. Um, um, you know, I had a lot on my plate. You know, I, I was playing at that point. I was playing very good cricket. I had, you know, probably I had a lot of endorsements. Probably too many. You know, I was, I was, 
yeah, so I had a lot on my plate and, you know, I, I, was, I wasn't probably dealing with it. Well, I wasn't dealing with the, um, the recognition. You know, everywhere I went there was people wanting photos and slapped me on the back and, and it was, that was starting to eat at me as well. I couldn't go anywhere for a meal or anything without having to deal with all that sort of thing all the time. Um, so it was that was that was weighing on me heavily as well. So and I wasn't, as I said, I was I was drinking too much and I, was, I wasn't dealing with it well. So that was as you, as you said, there was it was the beginning of the end, mate. Definitely, yeah. You, t- you talked about the drinking, mate. I think there was you, you might have missed a, a team meeting for a test match up I- in the top end, and then I, I guess it all came to the end at the two thousand and nine ICC T twenty event when you, I don't know if you got sent home for an alcohol-related issue? Yeah, I got, that was, see, my contract, I, I think I'm the only, <laughs> the only Australian cricketer that signed a different contract to everyone else. So I was I was on a complete drinking ban um, on that tour. So I had to sign my contract. I said, if, if you can play for Australia again, as long as there's no drinking. And I went, and I still wanted to play at that point. And I, so I had, I had to, you know, bite the bullet and sign it. Um, and then we went, we went to England, and then the state of origin was on, and we went to the, um, I think it was the Down Under bar to go and watch the Origin. And I just couldn't help myself. I said, "You don't watch Origin, not have a beer." <laughs> and the, yeah, so that was, and then that, yeah, they knew I'd been. I found out I'd been drinking, and then yeah, the next day I got, I got sent home. So how was that period, mate, when you were obviously, you know, you talked about the fact you were drinking and all of a sudden something that you'd love doing, that was it? Um, I, I remember you going on 60 Minutes. Um, I don't know how you reflect on that, but I remember thinking, gee, he's in a bit of bother, this bloke. He looks like a bit of a tortured soul at the moment. Yeah, I suppose that well, everything had sort of, um, how would you put it? Everything had sort of obviously weighed, was weighing me down like the... I had the the recognition from the the public was flattering, but it was, but it was I wasn't dealing with it well. You know, I just wanted I did want to just be in the boat, or I just did want to be camping or something like that. I just wanted to be away from people, and um, obviously in in that job and in, in the responsibilities that I had to sponsors and the game and my teammates, I did I didn't I couldn't be doing that, um, and yeah. So then over time. As as you said, it was just it was having its effect on me, and, and I wasn't doing the right things at the right times, and my cricket was suffering, my personal life was suffering, and yeah, it was um, yeah, it was a, a sort of a slippery slope, slippery slope. Next week on the Howie Games, we are stoked to feature a superstar by the name of Liesl Jones, an athlete that has been to the very top and the very bottom. I'm usually a pretty happy person. I'm usually pretty good and pretty chatty and I wasn't myself. I just turned into this person that was crying all the time and I was like, I don't want to train. I don't want to do this. I didn't. We were in Sierra Nevada in Spain and beautiful. Like if I went there now, it would be the most glorious place. I felt like I was in prison, like I was just stuck in my own thoughts. That's the inspirational Liesl Jones next week on the show. 
In previous series, we have mentioned private Howie Games podcasts. If you have loved ones, friends, someone that has inspired you, or someone close to you whose story you want to be recorded for posterity, please send us an email at thehowiegames at hotmail.com. That's Howie, H O W I E, thehowiegames at hotmail.com. We'll try and organise for me to sit down and have a chat just like a normal episode. It's not for broadcast, but for a family memory. Back to Andrew. Good things happen to good people, Roy, and as your career internationally was finishing, all of a sudden something popped up called the IPL. Andrew Simons is here. <laughs> Can Simons and the Rossies take the heat of the Indian Premier League? Coming soon. <laughs> and uh, I think 1.3 mil might have kicked into your bank account, US style. You went over there. Um, and it's ironic in a way that you'd had all those problems with India and it's been explained to me um, by other cricketers that I asked about this during the week that it's pretty much you and Brett Lee and possibly Gilly are the three most loved Australian cricketers in India. Now, you talk about being getting slaps on the back in Australia. What was it like in the height of the IPL when you were the man? Yeah, it was... Um, well, I suppose... It- to illustrate it, I suppose you, if Gilly and I played in the same side for the Deccan Chargers, mm. and so if if Gilly and I wanted to go into town and we wanted to go to the um, shop and get some shoes and some gear and that, um, they would close the shop and just let us in there. So then the, and by the time, so they'd security guards there, they'd close the shop and we'd go around because uh, we were sponsored by Puma, so we go into the Puma shop. And get all the deck and charges gear and stuff for the kids and shoes and all come out with shopping bags full. And by the time we'd done all that, the whole all the windows around the shop there'd be five or six deep, just people just staring in at in at us doing our doing our shopping. Wow. And so then when you'd come out of the shop, you know the word had got around. There's people everywhere, and the Indians are they get right in your personal space because there's so many of them. If you don't ask, you don't get. You know, so they they're. They're trying to get a touch of you and ask you to sign this and photo, photo. And so the security guards are just, they've got these big sticks, like we call them waddies, and they're just, like they'd raise them and then they'd scatter. So they'd let us out of the shop and jump in the car and gone. So, and, you know, you went to the shopping centre for for a meal or something or, you know, you just, you had to take security with you. It was just bedlam, mate. Um, and whenever you went somewhere, you'd have to, book it and make sure that they had security or you had to take security with you and yeah so it was um it was a, I mean it was a beautiful thing the IPL it couldn't have uh, couldn't have made us more happy um it was it was good I reckon for um relations between the two countries or all the countries really well, because all of a sudden you were sharing a dressing room with Harbajan at Mumbai yeah in my yeah my second second round I suppose you call it, I got contracted to the Mumbai Indians so um yeah, I was now playing with who was perceived to be my my worst enemy. Um, but did actually, did you break bread? We did. Um, I'll tell you a story about it. Um, but Matty Hayden said to me, "So the reason that you two bang heads is because you're probably very similar characters." Um, he he reckons, and he's probably right. So when I got to Mumbai, it was icy when I walked in there the first time, and um, and uh, he he always used to call me boss and. Uh, so we, we were into the season. We'd played a few games and we'd been invited to um, one of the owner's mates' houses for a, a team barbecue and drinks. Um, we'd ha- we had a couple of days off and that, so we, 
we went to this party and um, we'd had a few drinks and Harbhajan came over to me and said, um, he said, boss, can I talk to you for a minute? I said, sure, mate. And we sort of wandered over to the side and, and uh, he said, look, I really want to apologise for what I did and what I said. I hope it hasn't harmed you or your family too badly. Um, and he sort of started, he broke down. And I said, look, and he, he stuck his head, stuck my hand, shook hands and said, mate, look, it's all good. It's happened. And I appreciate your apology. And I could just see the weight lifted off his shoulders for him to get that off his chest. Were you his friend before the IPL started? Yeah, we, when uh, I moved from Deccan to uh, Mumbai, Mumbai Indians, um, yeah, we, we got on very well. We actually, we sat down one night and, and talked it through and uh, we had a hug and, and we got on. Ever since then, we've got on really well. Um, it, it was just handled badly. It was, it was just as I said, it was a passionate, it was a passionate thing. Cricket's a passionate thing. Um, and then whatever transpired, transpired. We're over that and we've moved on and we're, we're mates again now. They're, they're it's, still it's, sticking there. They're yeah. still sticking there. The media guys are still <laughs> sticking there. <laughs> and from from that point on, we were, we were good mates. We still are good mates. So he is a very generous man, very giving, um, and I enjoy his company. Um, and we, we have we have a good time together. You know, I've been, I've commentated with him over the years as well. And whenever whenever I go to India, he, he goes out of his way to make sure that I've got everything I need, and and he looks after me. He's he's uh, yeah, he's a good man. That time in India, again, this is... Oh, I couldn't find reference to this. I was in the back of my head. This is the urban legend Roy number three. <laughs> Did you appear on their v- sort of version of Big Brother? Yes. You did? I need to find it. What was it called? Oh, it, it's called Big Boss. <laughs> Funnily enough. <laughs> and, mate, holy smokes. I was in there for... I got, it, was a two, it was a two-week contract, unbeknownst to everyone else in the house... I was out in two weeks. They all thought I was, you know, obviously going to try and win the game, but I wasn't. <laughs> Mate, it was, it was one of the two of the hardest weeks I reckon of my life. There was, they'd starve you, they'd wake you up in the middle of the night, and could do all that to try and roll you up. And mate, these Indians, they would fight and fight and fight. You you should see some of the blues they had, yelling at each other, spitting in each other's faces, this close to each other. <laughs> and I was like the negotiator in there. I was saying, mate, calm down. <laughs> There's no need. This doesn't need to be happening. And um, oh, mate, it was a, it was a, it was a tough two weeks. Uh, and when I when I come out, oh, I loved my mother more. I, I appreciated <laughs> the world more. I, I was I was in a really good place when I came out of there. I well, thought, how good is this? One incident that was remiss me not to ask you about. As I said, I think you're known for your your, your dashing play, mate, and that's why everybody loved you. And the, the zinc cream and the dreadlocks. You're also known. And I presume you've answered this a million times, but it'd be remiss not to discuss it on the Howie Games. In fact, what do you think I'm going to ask you about now? The streaker. Correct, Roy. <laughs> Correct, Roy. <laughs> well, it's, one yes. of the, it's one of the classic moments in Australian one-day international cricket history. Mate, I'm not remembered for batting, bowling or fielding. I'm remembered for hitting, for knocking a streaker over. That's what I'm remembered for, Howie. Let's, let's be honest. You, you might be right. <laughs> they go, that's the bloke that knocked a streaker over, isn't it? So how did it happen, Roy? Well, it was it was a greasy night in Brisbane. We were playing <laughs> India in a final. A and <laughs> from memory, my memory's not great, but from memory we were in trouble again. And they were up us and I think... At the time, I think I'd just run Hados out. And so I'm thinking, 
I can now think of 10 better places to be than in that dressing room at Haydos, so I need to stay out here for as long as possible till he calms down. <laughs> so I'm going about my business, trying to sort of get a bit of a partnership going, and um, and then this bloke runs on, on the field. And as I said earlier in the podcast, I said we go to all these pre-season things we're doing, safety and racism and drugs, and we have to sign off on all these things, right? So this bloke, he's a fit, rangy-looking bloke, jumps the fence over near what would have been the Brisbane Lions social club over the far side of the ground. And he starts running out in the middle. So the crowd's gone, uh, erupted, right? He's got nothing on but a stubby cool around his right wrist, I think. <laughs> and there's a, a very overweight police, Queensland policeman in not hot pursuit, but he's nearly going backwards. And he's he's got the world's biggest two-way, which has come unclipped off his belt, and it's bouncing on the ground behind him as he's trying to make tracks on this bloke. And then there's a couple of sort of Asian security guards in high-vis shirts coming from all different angles. Anyway, so this bloke, no one's getting close to this bloke. He's way too good for him. And he comes out, he's coming towards the middle now. He's, he's inside the 30-yard circle, and the crowd's loving it. They can't catch him. The, so he starts... He looks out towards me and he looks at me and I sort of locked eyes on him and I sort of smiled and I went, oh, come over here, dickhead. <laughs> so he comes he comes over towards me and the umpire stepped back from the stumps. He's thinking, oh, this bloke could be a lunatic. So he's moved out of the road and I've sort of swapped my bat from my um, right hand into my left hand, right side dominant. And as the uh, the Broncos back rower, Tony Carroll, taught me once, he said, work from high to low. So try and get under their ribs. <laughs> and knock the wind out of them, and then when, if, you, if you're good enough, when you actually knock them, off, get them off the ground horizontal, then when they land on the ground, you land on top of them again and try and knock any wind that's ever left in them out. <laughs> so I worked from high to low, got the shoulder in, didn't wrap the arms, but that's the way it was. And I knocked this bloke, hor- I got him horizontal, I got him pretty good. And then um, shortly after that, the... Um, Queensland Police Force caught up with this gentleman and as did the security guards and escorted him off the ground. And the best thing about it, Roy, Richie Benno, the late, great Richie Benno was in commentary and just did some of his more understated but outstanding work in there. Yeah, I didn't... um, I can't remember what he... Can you remember what he said? I can't remember what he said. No, I'll I'll play it. Well, that uh, streaker, we don't know at the moment if it's a boy or a girl streaker, it's a boy. A boy. It's a boy, Rich. Well, he could have done some injury to Andrew Simons there because he seemed to run straight at him and all of a sudden he was on his back. That, uh, that was the first tackle of the state of origin. And it, and it was a male. If you say so. About these games of cricket we're getting, I mean, you can't take your off a single ball. In that case, I'll take your word for it, it was a male. Yeah, the boys played that many times in the dressing sheds afterwards. It was, it was, yeah, it was replayed and replayed and replayed. It was, yeah, it was one of those things that just, just happened here, I suppose. I don't know, and became iconic. One of those things that seems to happen to you, Roy. Here's <laughs> the way I would put it. How do you, looking back now, you've been a long time retired and it's going to be wonderful to hear you on Fox throughout the next few summers. How do you reflect on your career, Roy? Um, mate, I reckon 
in summary, I was I was really lucky that I got the support I did from not only not all the way back from mum and dad, but from captains and coaches and that sort of thing to give me probably extended opportunity to actually become the player I could. So I I, I really did love it because I, I felt I owed those people for giving me those opportunities. So um, once I'd sort of worked out a method to, to batting and that, I, I really did cherish playing for Australia. It was, a, it was um, I mean, it's something that everyone says, but I, I really did enjoy it. And back in those in those times, those days, we had a great side, you know, arguably five, you know, and the word great's loosely used, but Warren's a great player, Hayden's a great player, Gilchrist's a great player, Ponting's a great player, uh, Gillespie, I reckon, is a great player. McGrath. Who else I missed? McGrath. Look, I'm playing with these blokes. Yeah. So life on the cricket field, I mean, it was difficult at times, but it was an enjoy- enjoyable difficulty, you know what I mean? You're watching these blokes go about their business some days was fascinating. So I was really lucky to play in, in that in that era with those with those men. And all the way back to where we started now, uh, saying that you're one of the three most requested people to come on this show from our audience. And I, I don't say that. That's, that's genuine, mate. It's you, Skull and, and JT, who you're going to sort out for us, but that's a story for another day. Um <laughs> How is it now when people come up to you? I, I was lucky enough to sit with you and your beautiful wife and, and my lovely wife, Erica, at the grand final, and, and people just congregate around you, Roy. They, they love to come and chat and tell you stories about where they were when you were batting or what they loved about you. How is that now that you've, you're out of the game, you're out of that bubble that you said you struggled with at the time? Yeah, it is it is flattering and it, is, it does make you feel warm and fuzzy at times. Um, the, bi- the biggest thing I suppose I'm trying to do at the moment is educate my children. You know, they're saying, Dad, why do people want to have photos with you? Why do they want you to sign things? And, mm. and you know, Chloe Chloe will just go, my dad's famous. And I said, whoa, 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 steady. We don't need to be talking like that. So it is, it is I mean, it has, those, has those, those beautiful unscripted moments, I suppose. Um, and explaining, William's right into his screen and trying to explain to him, he's, at the moment, I'm trying to explain to him. He goes, Dad, I'm going to play for Australia one day. He goes, how do I do it? And I said, well, there's a bit of a process involved, mate. He goes, what is it? I said, well, you've got to play club cricket, state cricket, and then in, and Australia, and international cricket. That's in a nutshell, mate. That's the way you got it. And he goes, how? How do you do it? I said, well, it's a lot of training, a lot of hard work, a lot of dedication, what have you. He said, so if I if I practice lots, Dad, will I play for Australia? I said, well, mate, no, there's no guarantee, <laughs> but you give it a crack and I'll and I'll help you. So, I, I normally finish this podcast by asking a question you're addressing now. As I said to you before we got underway, we're we're really blessed that a lot of younger people, kids, teenagers, listen to this show with their parents on the way to cricket or soccer or footy or tennis or league or whatever it is. Is that the advice you deliver that you need to work hard? Yeah, it is. You need to, you need, you need a, a few things. I reckon you need your parents are instrumental. I reckon you know taking you and ha- having the time and the dedication, the patience to take you to training and wait for you at games and do all that sort of thing uh, is very important. And then if you're given that, if you're given that opportunity by your parents, then it's having the right equipment so you can train properly and become better. So you, oh, the amount of kids I see that, that use bats that are too big or too heavy, too long. It's 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 crippling the poor kid, you know what I mean. So get them fitted out right, and then 
it, it comes down to pure hard work. You have got to practice. If you, it's like anything. If you don't practice it, you don't become better and you don't become good at it. I'm going to ask you the toughest question of the whole podcast right now, and I want you to only go with one. You mentioned the names you played with. Who is the best cricketer you played with, Roy? Oh. The full, I suppose if you look at the full package, I'm looking at the whole lot. I reckon Ponting. And I say that because the captaincy, his batting, his fielding and his regard for his teammates, I reckon that as a full package, it's it's probably Ricky. I've missed, you know, i you got Warren, you got McGrath, you got these folks, but I just think just purely on that, I reckon maybe he's just pipped them. And who's the one player now you're going to spend a lot of time this summer watching cricket, commentating cricket, and you do, who's the one player when they walk out to bat or have the ball in their hand that you think, right, I'm sitting down to watch this? Oh. Well, I reckon Maxwell's probably got a bit of that about him. Mm. Um, there's, I mean, there's obviously there's a lot of water that's got to go under the bridge, as we talked about earlier with, with setting up the game again, I reckon. It needs to, they don't need to reset and start start fresh. But whether or not that's going to happen is the thing that's going to be most interesting. Has, has someone got the, the knuckle to say, right, listen, this needs to be fixed. Let's do it right now. Who's that person going to be? And then everyone can reset and we can get back on top of the world. Roy, I know in the past when I look at the big bash schedule and I see my name on a game next to yours, I always go to work with a swing of my step um, <laughs> because I always know it's going to be good fun, which is what we're in. We're in the entertainment business. Um, we're competing yeah. against other entertainment, whether it's Netflix or going to the beach or whatever. So uh, I can't wait to sit beside you in the box in Fox this year and talk about cricket and uh, get your your fielding <laughs> regulation <laughs> arrangement under control. It's going to be a good summer, mate. I really appreciate your time. No worries, Harry. Thanks for having me on, mate. Good on you, mate. Andrew Simons. Thanks to Roy. Yeah, just for being Roy. What a star he is. Thanks to Fox Cricket for sorting this episode with Roy out. Well done to MJ for turning the episode around very, very sharpish. And to you out there for listening to this point. Until next Thursday with Lisa Jones, peace and love. Come over here, dickhead. <laughs> and we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try